Welcome to the Bulgarian History Podcast, Episode 109, The Auspicious Incident. Now, first, I'd like to thank our newest patron, Eric Johnson. Big thanks to you, Eric, and I'll be sending you your Patreon stuff very shortly. And, well, let's get into it then. So, last time, we focused mostly on the Greek War of Independence. We discussed the immense power of Ali Pasha and how the Sultan's decision to finally confront him militarily created an opening for the Greek revolt. That revolt triggered condemnation in Europe, although over time, more loans and young fighters did come to aid, including from Bulgaria. The Russians also did help somewhat by encouraging a war between the Ottomans and the Persians, which Persia won, further dividing Ottoman military resources. In Crete and Cyprus, the revolt did not go very well and was ultimately crushed when Mahmoud II asked the Egyptian ruler Muhammad Ali to send his army in exchange for ruling the territories. Mainland Greece saw more of a mixed bag militarily, but now that the Egyptians have arrived, well, let's say it's not looking great for the Greeks. And lastly, we talked a bit more about how peace was returning to Bulgaria, and Petr Beron published a kind of textbook which would go on to aid the Bulgarian educational revolution that was developing. Finally, the last thing we covered was Nicholas I coming to the throne in Russia and beginning negotiations with the Ottomans over the Greek situation and that of Wallachia and Moldavia. It's now 1826. As mentioned in previous episodes, Sultan Mahmud II was a reformer. One thing to quickly mention here is that one of his reforms was actually enacting clothing reform. So this resulted in the Sultans wearing more European military-style uniforms. I'll include a photo of this in the blog post of the episodes. So, kind of a small and more entertaining example of the way Mahmoud II is trying to push the Ottoman Empire towards a more European model of, well, most things, to be frank. So, as we go on into the 1830s, we'll talk more about other things he's trying to do. But for now, we know he's reforming the military along European lines, but also trying to look the part, so to say. So, obviously, with the conflicts kind of ongoing with the Persians, Greeks, and a possible conflict with the Russians, it's kind of always on the horizon, Mahmoud is more focused on reforming the army into something that could actually win a war and help keep peace in the empire. Well, with the Janissaries, as we've seen in places like Serbia, often, often they do the exact opposite of keep peace. Their bad behavior actually provokes conflict. As I've mentioned many times, at this point, the Janissaries have long since gone from being a source of power to the Ottomans to being a source of deep weakness. They were now a group of about 135,000 men who didn't pay taxes, collected salaries from the government, and were ardent defenders of the status quo in the empire's political, military, and economic life. Many sultans have tried to get rid of them, but to no avail. Still, Mahmoud well, he was a clever man, and he had his own plan. The first thing he needed to act against the Janissaries, to basically enact the first major step of his reform the army, well, was an excuse. 
In early 1826, he issued a fatwa, a religious order, stating that he was going to form a new European-style army. Now, as we know, this has been tried before, but this time, Mahmud's aim was to provoke the Janissaries into revolting. And, well, it's no surprise to anyone, that is exactly what they did. But this time, the Sultan and his allies were ready. The Sapahi cavalry, who had always been rivals to the Janissaries, worked with local populations around the empire who detested the Janissaries as, you know, abusive and such. And, well, they worked together to push the Janissaries into their barracks. The Sultan himself came out into Constantinople with many of the holiest objects in Islam and called on all Muslims to oppose the Janissaries. In other words, Mahmud was not playing. He was making an all-out push to get rid of the Janissary Corps. And the result was a massacre. Thousands upon thousands of Janissaries died, and many thousands more were hunted down and exiled. The last Janissaries were decapitated in front of a tower in Thessaloniki known as the White Tower, but for a long time after this event, called the Bloody Tower. The Janissaries' property was confiscated, and within months, the 500-year history of their order was over. The Janissary Order was annihilated in what was eventually called the Auspicious Incident. Shaw's History of the Ottoman Empire mentions that, quote, Though the Sultan had promised to pay lifetime pensions to surviving Janissary Corps members, so many of those who applied, were actually imprisoned and executed, so that the remainder chose to forego their claims. End quote. Again, Mahmud II was not playing around. He had no patience for the Janissary Corps. He was not going to let them down easy. He wanted them dead, exiled, or basically to shut up and, you know, fade away into the distance and pretend they never existed. And it worked. It did actually work this time. We've talked over and over and over again about how many sultans have tried to reform or get rid of or just do something with the Janissary Corps. And Mahmud, with a little bit of foresight, some planning, learning a lot of lessons from his predecessors, did it. And as such, he was finally freed of this burden on the treasury and opponent to reform. The effects of the elimination of the Janissary Corps were felt far and wide. The new army, created to replace them, called Asakir-i-Mansure-i-Muhammadiyye, or the Victorious Soldiers of Muhammad, was largely Turks, marking a major shift from the obviously very multi-ethnic Janissary Corps, including many ethnic Bulgarians taken uh, via the Devshirme over the time. But for many of those converted Muslims of the Balkans and Arabs, I imagine, this was actually an attack on their privileges, and they no longer had a clear way to advance within the empire's military. So, you know, even though it's obviously a long time before the Republic of Turkey is founded, this does mark an interesting shift in the Ottoman Empire from, again, a Janissary Corps that's multi-ethnic and really to be a member, in theory at least, you really just have to be a Muslim or you know, convert to Islam. Obviously, over time, the, that changed quite a bit to being, no, no, it's not just about being a Muslim, but being a Turk. And obviously from the Sultan's perspective, this is about having a much more centralized and very cohesive army. And, you know, it makes some sense. Uh, at this point, trying to create a professional army from lots of different uh, ethnicities of the empire probably would be pretty tricky. But you can also sympathize with the other people within the empire. 
I mean, ironically enough, soon enough, the empire is going to try to find ways to be more inclusive towards its minority, both religious and ethnic minority populations and to, you know, create a sense that, hey, we're all part of the same empire. We should all kind of work together, blah, 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 blah. But, you know, this does act against that. You know, it's saying to, let's say, the Bosniaks, right, the Muslims living in Bosnia, like, you're not really welcome in the army. This isn't the place for you. And, you know, as in a lot of history, right, for a lot of people, joining the army is a way to advance. And that way is now firmly shut off. So this is going to have interesting ramifications over time, but bear that in mind. So, you know, previously I've kind of justified, you know, why in the Bulgarian History Podcast do we talk about even Ottoman armies marching off to Persia and such? And from my perspective, those Ottoman armies are full of plenty of ethnic Bulgarians, both ones who've converted to Islam and ones who are just coming along as engineers or just sort of camp followers and things like this. But now that is changing. Anyway, so besides all these changes, this new force obviously is not enormous to start. So in the beginning, they have about 12,000 members, but by the end of the 1820s, that number will rise up to about 27,000. But still, by the standards of the militaries of this era, that is fairly small. But the idea is really to be more cohesive than large, so that makes sense. Now, historian R.J. Crampton points to two major effects the destruction of the Janissary Corps had on Bulgaria in particular. The first was that the new European army the Sultan was created needed food and clothing, two things that Bulgaria would provide in vast quantities. Bulgarian sheep herders became more wealthy, providing both meat and wool, while Bulgarian producers of a rough cloth called abba and the decorative lace called gaitan they were doing great too because they sold vast amounts of this cloth and lace to the Ottoman government for the uniforms of the officers and enlisted men. So it's a bit of an irony, right? The creation of this new Ottoman army is going to help pump money into the Bulgarian economy, which is going to help fuel and really pay for the Bulgarian national revival. But of course, ironically, eventually, Bulgarians are going to be fighting these Ottoman soldiers that are, you know, fed and clothed with Bulgarian products. So it's creating a very interesting relationship. And in addition, notice when we talked about a little less Serbia, but particularly last time, talking about the Greek Revolution, how many Greeks had a strong stake in the Ottoman Empire, a reason to side with the Ottomans and to not favor Greek independence. Well, Keep this in mind because now that some Bulgarians are being able to kind of get wealthy on the Ottoman economy, the Ottoman system, and sort of the economic realities of the empire, there's a possibility that's going to happen in the future in Bulgaria as well. And that could play into effect in future Bulgarian uprisings. Anyway, so the second effect that R.J. Crampton points to was that this basically finally put an end to the Sapahi system. Although the Sapahis have talked about this system gradually going down, and they did help destroy the Janissary Corps, but they're really not relevant anymore. And so remember, previously Sapahis provided either themselves as cavalrymen or paid a kind of tithe to the Sultan for soldiers. It's essentially an old feudal system. Again, it had been outdated for decades, and they were a pretty ineffectual military force at this point. Well, Seeing that, over the course of the 1830s, the Sapahis were finally retired and new landholding agreements were drawn up. 
as a part of this, the Sepahis no longer functioned as a local judicial kind of system. And so the central Ottoman government began to install new judges, finally bringing some centralization to the empire that, well, had basically been decentralized and feudal from the beginning. So again, these are more changes and we'll have to wait and see just how this new kind of judicial system ends up really affecting Bulgarians, whether these central Ottoman judges are going to be fairer or nicer than the ones that the Sepahis represented. Now, overall, the elimination of the Janissaries throughout 1826 had, of course, greater geopolitical effects. Now, the Ottoman military was clearly weaker as it was going through this transition, and so Russia was able to force an agreement upon the Sultan's envoys. Remember I mentioned last time that the Tsar forced the Sultan to begin negotiations and threatened war. So, yeah, again, this made it so the Ottomans were in a very weak position when it came to negotiating. And in addition, there was British pressure because, well, the British felt they couldn't fully support the Ottomans in light of all the bloodshed that was occurring in Greece and all the you know, pro-Greek public sentiment that this was generating in Great Britain. And so, well, the Russians and the Ottomans came to an agreement called the Ackerman Convention. The agreement was that the Ottomans would withdraw their military forces from Wallachia and Moldavia. They would give Wallachia control of the Danube ports on the north side of the Danube River. It reaffirmed the autonomy of Serbia, and lastly stated that the local notables would elect the rulers of Wallachia and Moldavia, but their decision needed the approval of both Russia and the Ottomans. Lastly, Russian ships were also given free access to all Ottoman waters, and the Ottomans recognized the Caucasus as a purely Russian sphere of influence. Well, this was also helped by Russia winning two wars against the Persians there in the last few decades. So, lucky for the Russians, I mean, they got a decent number of you know, concessions here without having to really go to war or do anything. And this is starting to really set up Wallachia and Moldavia as more of a, this in-between space. I mean, they've always been, you know, never a full, fully integrated kind of part of the Ottoman Empire. But now they're kind of half Ottoman, half Russian, with the Russians having a lot of influence there. And in the case of a war between the Ottomans and Russians, well, they're kind of a no-man's land. That, well, obviously both armies will probably rush into at the moment a war starts. Now, along with the provisions of the Treaty of Bucharest 14 years earlier, which, remember, made Russia the protector of the Orthodox population of the empire, this really marked another encroachment of Russia into Ottoman affairs. So, while the European powers, you know, thinking about the concert of Europe, would not let Russia annex more Ottoman territory, the British in particular were very worried about Russia taking Constantinople, these treaties were a different way for Russia to subtly exert more influence without rocking the boat of the Concert of Europe. Now, the Russians had also pushed for an end to the Greek War as a part of the agreement, but to no avail. With the powerful Egyptian army on their side, the Ottomans were feeling pretty good about their chances. But European feelings about the Greek situation were changing. France now shifted its position. Having trained the Egyptian soldiers who were fighting in Greece themselves, they were now facing public pressure and the French king saw a chance to maybe have a little more influence in a potentially independent Greece. Now, on this basis, Russia, England, and France signed the Treaty of London in July of 1827. It offered an ultimatum to the Ottomans. 
make Greece a dependent state paying tribute to the, to the Ottomans, but functionally autonomous, or the three European powers would possibly intervene, or at least show their severe displeasure. Although the European powers did instruct their forces not to fight the Ottomans, but this was still kind of a veiled threat. Still, the Ottomans felt they were winning the ground war and that their navy could hold off any allied attempts to intervene, and so they politely declined the provisions of the offer. Just at that moment, Ottoman-led forces also captured Athens, and the Greeks were looking to be in an increasingly bad situation. In light of the Ottoman refusal, an allied naval force was sent to Greece. Despite its command not to fight, though, the commanders of that naval force were itching for a fight. They managed to bottle up the Egyptian-slash-Ottoman fleet in a port, and then kind of goaded them into battle by entering the harbor at Navarino, where they were, while declaring that the Egyptians had to return home. In other words, while they didn't kind of start the fight, they made a fight basically inevitable. So unsurprisingly, the Egyptians responded to this strong provocation with force. And this force triggered a brutal response. The Allied fleet annihilated 57 Egyptian ships and killed over 8,000 sailors in the span of just three hours. Just like that, in the span of less than an afternoon, the balance of power in the Greek War of Independence shifted tremendously. Now, all of a sudden, Ibrahim Pasha was completely cut off from supplies and reinforcements. His soldiers were still better trained, but they needed food and bullets and all kinds of other military supplies, which were, well, to be frank, things that the ravaged Greek countryside simply couldn't provide them. Now, understandably, the Sultan was furious. His position on land and sea had shifted in an instant, and he demanded compensation for the lost ships, but, again, kind of unsurprisingly, was refused on the grounds that his forces had technically fired first. Forget the provocations, you know, they had their excuse. England and France may have hoped this battle would force the Ottomans to negotiate, but, in fact, it only hardened the Sultan's determination to resist. Russia, for its part, took this incident as an excuse to declare war. Well, you know, they had excuses. It was clear that Tsar Nicholas in Russia had wanted to declare war, but was concerned with upsetting the concert of Europe. But now that his allies had effectively fought the Ottomans because of the refusal of the Treaty of London, well, he had his casus belli. He could invade without, well, okay, it was going to annoy the other Europeans, but he had kind of plausible deniability. So, in the spring of 1828, 100,000 Russian soldiers under the personal command of Tsar Nicholas entered Wallachia and Moldavia before crossing the Danube into Dobruja in June. Russian forces also advanced into Anatolia and its Mediterranean fleet began to supply arms to the Greeks, further tipping the scales there. So with the Russians advancing, the Ottomans faced a serious problem. They had effectively no navy, no Janissary Corps, and their new army was still basically being trained. As a result, the army they did have was largely made up of Tatars and Irregulars. Desperate, the Sultan offered Muhammad Ali the governorship of Anatolia, as well as adding to his promises of Crete and Cyprus and southern Greece. In other words, he just kept offering anything he could to get the Egyptians to send more help and to save him from this awful situation that he had managed to get himself into. Egypt attempted to send soldiers and supplies, but without a navy, it, they had to go overland, 
and poor infrastructure and local corruption meant that very little of these supplies and soldiers ended up arriving where they were needed, and of course it took ages for them to get there. So, unsurprisingly, in this situation, the Russian army made rapid advances. They quickly besieged Ottoman fortresses along the Danube, like Siristra, Ruse, and Vidin, before advancing to the major Ottoman fortress at Schumann. In July, a Bulgarian delegation arrived at the Russian headquarters asking the emperor to offer protection to the Bulgarians, though there doesn't seem to have been any result from this. In eastern Anatolia, the Russian army took Kars with the help of local Armenians, helping to kick off a long-standing Ottoman-Armenian feud that would ultimately culminate in genocide. But, well, that's a long way down the line. Soon, the war in the Balkans focused on the sieges of Varna, Schumann, and Silistra. In October of 1828, Ibrahim Pasha could see the writing on the wall and decided to withdraw his Egyptian army from Greece. Despite his commanding position just two years earlier, he now knew he stood a little chance. Around that same time, representatives from Britain, France, Russia, and the Greeks, actually, along with the Ottomans, met in London to discuss the new status of Greece. Obviously, with the Egyptians retreating, well, the war was not going so well for the Ottomans anymore. Still, they were unable to come to an agreement, and so they reconvened on the Greek island of Poros. The discussion at that point wasn't really about whether Greek would, Greece would be independence, but about how far north the border would be. Ultimately, the conference in Poros issued a report that recommended the farther, nor, farthest kind of northern boundary, in other words, the largest possible Greece, adding that Greece should also obtain Crete and be a monarchy. Ultimately, though, the biggest element preventing a larger Greek state was actually British fears that Russia would dominate that state and use it as a pawn to take more Ottoman territory. Ironically, the same fear that would later be so influential as Bulgaria gained its independence. But while some were upset with these recommendations, well, the powers agreed on them and at least saw them as a basis for negotiation. Meanwhile, as a part of the other agreements, 15,000 French soldiers landed in the Peloponnese in Greece to supervise the Egyptian withdrawal. Most would return home after about eight months, but this was a uniquely humiliating moment for the Ottomans, as a foreign power who hadn't even fought in the war was now essentially supervising their defeat. The winter of 1828 did bring some respite for the Ottomans, as the Russians had to retreat into Bessarabia to wait out the season without having successfully captured Schumann or Silistra, though Varna was taken with the help of the navy. Still, by the time 1829 came around, the Ottoman army was still in shambles. Its young recruits were hungry, riven by plague, and yet another Russian army was on its way. This one resumed the sieges of the previous year, intent on finishing the job this time. The Ottomans sent a 40,000-strong army to retake Varna, but it was defeated. Soon, Silistra fell to the Russians, and within months, their forces had crossed the Balkan mountains and taken Edirne after only three days. It was the first time a Russian army had crossed the Balkan mountains since Sviatoslav had invaded the First Bulgarian Empire 862 years previously. Now, at this point, Schumann may have still been under siege, but Varna, Burgas, and Edirne, or Adrianople, or Odrin, whatever you want to call it, well, they were all in Russian hands, and the Russian army was a three-day march 
from Constantinople, causing panic in the city. And, well, that wasn't all. In the east, the Russians took Erzurum and Trabzon along the Black Sea coast. That is to say, it was clear to everyone that the Ottomans were finished. The European powers now felt the need to end this war before Russia took, well, too much. Remember, they were all concerned about keeping a balance of power. And although Russia ended up with an excuse to start this war, the other European powers wanted to make sure Russia didn't become too powerful as a result. Meanwhile, in March of 1829, following the Ottoman rejection of the Conference of Poros, another meeting between the great powers in London met to discuss how to move forward. Again, the time pressure was that they had felt the need to find a resolution to the war before the Russians made too much progress. So, they agreed to a smaller Greek state, the border would move much farther south, and this new Greek state would not include Crete, Cyprus, or many of the Aegean islands. The state would also be under Ottoman sovereignty, paying the sultan annual tribute, and it would have a Christian monarch from Western Europe. By August, the sultan agreed to begin peace talks, and a peace treaty was concluded in September. At this point, he had no real choice. Shaw summarized this moment well, stating, quote, Russia was now in a position to occupy the rest of the Ottoman Empire but it did not do so because this would have been opposed by its European friends as well as enemies. Instead, the Tsar resolved to make peace that would leave the Ottoman Empire intact, but too weak to prevent the spread of Russian influence or to frustrate Russian advances in the future. So again, the whole Russian idea here is finding some kind of a balance, finding a way that Russia can exert its influence without upsetting its European friends. The Treaty of Adrianople was the realization of this reality. Russia's control of Georgia, as well as territories it had taken from the Persians, were all recognized. Russia also gained access to the mouth of the Danube River. More importantly, the autonomy of Serbia, and now Greece, was affirmed. Russia also gained the right to occupy Wallachia and Moldavia until a large war indemnity was paid. For all intents and purposes, Wallachia and Moldavia were now independent and under Russian control. Historian Misha Glenny points out that, in effect, quote, for the peasantry, a greedy Romanian oligarchy had replaced a Greek kleptocracy, end quote. Thinking about what's happening in Wallachia and Moldavia, so the Greek phanariots are out, and now there are, you know, Romanians, there's locals who are appointed by boyars and are agreed upon by the Russians and the Ottomans. That's all great. But for the peasants, very little actually changed, just whoever's in charge. So bear that in mind. So with the signing of the Treaty of Adrianople, just like that, in the span of a decade, the Ottomans had lost Serbia, Greece, Wallachia, and Moldavia. True, all of them at this point were still technically part of the Ottoman Empire, but the Ottomans had little to no real authority in these territories. The Russian foreign minister, Karl Nesselrode, said, quote, the more one thinks about the immense question of the fall of the Turkish Empire, the more one plunges into a labyrinth of difficulty and complications. End quote. So that was increasingly the challenge from the European perspective to find some balance in the gradual breaking apart of the Ottoman realm, and to have this happen in such a way that it does not trigger a major European war. Within months of the Treaty of Adrianople, though, another great power meeting in London occurred in which they amended their previous decision and said, okay, actually now Greece is going to be fully independent. 
Despite this, discussions over the final border and just who would be king of Greece were also ongoing. So although the Treaty of Adrianople was signed, things were still in limbo. This actual meeting offered the throne to Leopold of Belgium, but he refused. Ironically, he was actually from the same Saxe-Coburg-Gotha line that would eventually give Bulgaria its royal family. So Greece and Bulgaria almost had very similar royal families. Why Why was suddenly the, Why did the great powers change their mind? Why did they suddenly decide to make Greece independent? Was it because the foreign powers decided that Greece deserved independence? <laughs> of course not. Have you been listening to anything I've been saying? No, the overriding concern was still in preventing too much Russian influence in the new Greek state. Britain and France basically changed their minds and reckoned that if Greece was going to be somewhat independent, it may as well be fully independent because that would make Greece stronger and if it was stronger, it would be able to operate more independently of Russian influence. Of course, when Bulgaria will face that exact same predicament, well, let's just say Britain and France will not have the same thinking. Overall, though, despite their successes, Greece and Serbia faced huge challenges. Both states were overwhelmingly poor and rural, severely depopulated by their recent wars of independence. Both offered few economic prospects for Serbs or Greeks outside of their territory. For example, only about 800,000 Greeks lived in the new state, while another 2 million lived in the rest of the Ottoman realm. National identity was also still relatively weak, and both states were racked by internal power struggles. Greece was also saddled with an enormous foreign debt from those two loans that came from London to aid the revolution. Historian Mark Mazower points out that, quote, Nor did Greek and Serbian triumph mean that the people in the Balkans immediately started thinking in terms of nation-states. On the contrary, Romania and Bulgaria were notions that as late as 1830 animated only a handful of intellectuals and activists. Albania and Macedonia, in all likelihood, next to none. In southeastern Europe, far from the nation winning itself as an independent state, as romantic nationalists imagined, the leaders of the new states had to create the nation out of a peasant society that was imbued with the worldview of its Ottoman past, end quote. So, as mentioned early in the Greek example, it wasn't so simple just to take peasants who had lived within the Ottoman system for centuries and get them to suddenly imagine a new world and a new system of economics and politics. No, instead the result was that they ended up feuding with national elites fighting amongst each other, like with the Obranovich and Karadzic feud in Serbia. All these groups knew they needed foreign support, so they would often end up focusing far more on obtaining that than making actual improvements to their own countries. All of these being tendencies that will eventually manifest themselves in an independent Bulgaria. In Wallachia and Moldavia, the situation was a bit different. There, the population had long been ruled by Greek phanariots loyal to the sultan. Now, they were getting Russian administrators who would implement a wide-ranging set of reforms, though this wouldn't necessarily endear them to the local population. The Ottoman losses were soon even greater, though, as later that year, the French occupied Algiers, and eventually all of Algeria, because of unpaid Ottoman debts, kicking off a long and bloody conquest of that part of North Africa. Now lastly, I want to mention another change occurring in Bulgaria as anger against the Greek-dominated church is still gradually increasing. Around 1827 and 1828, there was a small uprising around Skopje against the local Greek bishop. 
So, you know, this is kind of on the back burner. As all these big, grand uh, political changes are happening in Bulgaria, you're getting people that are wealthier, but also people who are upset at the kind of abuses of the Greek-dominated Orthodox Church hierarchy. And that's where we're finished today. Greece is independent, but fighting internally and waiting for a Western prince to come be its king. More Ottoman territories have been taken away, and the empire looks weaker than ever. However, on the other hand, the elimination of the Janissaries and the strengthening of Ottoman central power means that the empire may finally have the chance to reform and strengthen itself. In other words, the empire may be weak, but the foundation has been set for a potential revival. Whether the empire will be able to take advantage of that remains to be seen. And, well, you'll see it next time. This episode was written and produced by me, Eric Halsey. The theme music was written and performed by Teddy Raven. Check out the Bulgarian language version of the podcast at bghistorypodcast.com, and you know what to do. Check out the website, review us on iTunes, all that good stuff, and I'll catch you in the next one.